There were two fellows that went to the same church, and one fellow missed church one Sunday and asked his friend what was the topic of the sermon. And his friend, his friend uh, fellow who did attend church that Sunday, wasn't really paying that close attention. We thought, let me see, what did he preach on? Um, it was about sin. Okay, well, what about sin? Uh, he was against it. Yeah, okay. That was about as much as he could remember. Um, I do want some things to really stick with you this morning. And one of the ways we can do that is, is to just give you a sound bite that I'd like to repeat. And that is that New Covenant Recovery Ministry is not about trying harder, but it's about trusting more. Could you repeat that with me? New Covenant Ministry is not about trying harder, but about trusting more. Uh, because I'm a guest tuner, me, we'll do it once more. New Covenant Recovery Ministry is not about trying harder. It's about trusting more. We're going to talk about the aspect of what Jesus did on the cross today that is going to relate this to, uh, to basically a people-helping process. And we're going to see that there are three fundamental aspects of the cross that really are important for you and I to be set free and experience that inner transformation. One is that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. We talked about that in the chapel service. He died on the cross for you and me as our Redeemer. But also we want to emphasize during this session that he gave his life to us. When you receive him, God's life comes into you and your spirit is made alive. Amen? You become a new creation of Christ. So he gave his life to us. But during this session, we're going to talk about a third aspect, and that is, his purpose is to live his life through us. And our key verse is Galatians 2.20. We're going to end up with that at the end of the seminar, where Paul says, and this really capitalizes what we're trying to say, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this body, in this flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that a great passage? Very profound, but very important. So the three aspects of the cross I'd like to stick with you this morning is that Christ gave his life for us on the cross, that he might give his life to us spiritually, and the purpose is that he might live his life through us. Now, I have a hand gesture I'd like to teach you so that if someone asks you about what you learned now, on Wednesday, you'll remember a little bit more than that fellow in my, my little anecdote. And so, in terms of Jesus giving his life for us, I'd like to ask you to put up your hands like this and make a cross. It would be that human beyond your guess, right? So make a cross and say, Jesus gave his life for us. Once again, Jesus gave his life for us. The second statement is that, that he might give his life to us. Say that. And he might give his life to us and to illustrate that, put your two hands out like this, like you're offering someone something like a gift, right? So that he might give his life to us, and then again, that he might give his life to us. Now in the third gesture, the third statement is that he might live his life through us, and we're going to make our praying hand and say that he might live his life through us. Let's put all that together, ready? Jesus gave his life for us, that he might give his life to us, that he might live his life through us. 
Now, let's just see who, who gets this quicker, the girls or the guys. Okay, girls, girls first, right? Okay, ladies, ready? Jesus gave his life for us, that he might give his life to us, that he might live his life through us. Fellas, don't let him show, show you up, ready? Are you ready? Fellas, Jesus gave his life for us, that he might give his life to us, that he might live his life through us. Well, one of our alumni, people like the hand, good job. There is a review test at the end of the seminar, so keep that in mind. Uh, one of our alumni was really concerned about taking this message of New Covenant Redemption and making it accessible, especially to the younger generation. And so he has published a booklet and a video, and the booklet has gone into uh, many uh, ministries, and especially he's concerned about those who are incarcerated. Hundreds of thousands of these booklets have been published. And I'd like to start off this seminar by showing you a video where he takes the two aspects of what we talk about in chapel, God's redemption and his sanctification, Christ died for us, that he might give his life to us, that he might live his life through us. It's all wrapped up in this video. So we're going to just ask the technician to show you that right now and hopefully be encouraging to you. Title, How to Be a Child of God. Jesus gave his life for us, that he might give his life to us, that he might live his life through us. Once more, Jesus gave his life for us, that he might give his life to us, that he might live his life through us. Give yourself a hand. You can be seated. Thank you very much. Now imagine how valuable it would be if I offered you a a box with gold and rubies and silver. That would be pretty expensive. Well, Proverbs says that wisdom is more valuable than gold and silver and rubies. And this section is about the wisdom of taking what we've been talking about in chapel in that video and asking the question, how does this apply to our life and about how we can help others? Are you with me? Is it important wisdom about how to help others using this message? Now, as we continue this PowerPoint, I'll just kind of drift back to your thinking once in a while. We're going to put it in context and say that before the fall, there was fulfillment because of God's design. There was dominion over this earth. There was harmony with the animal kingdom. Wouldn't that be cool to pet a lion, you know, and have, have no uh, conflict in terms of uh, uh, 
conflict in nature. So there was harmony, there was meaning over the earth. But after Adam and Eve broke the covenant in Genesis 3, there were cosmic consequences. So then, notice here it says there was a quest for fulfillment through relationships. And what are we looking for? What, what is going to bring fulfillment? The next slide. We all have, I'll call them ultimate needs. See if you agree with me about this list. You could add to it. But God designed us to relate to him, and God is a personal, moral God. And because of that, you and I have these, these needs. Before the fall, all these needs were fulfilled through God, through uh, human relationship, unhindered, and through harmony with the environment. We need identity, to know who we are, and to have a positive identity, to know that we belong. You agree? We need to have a sense that we belong, that we fit in, to know where we belong and that we belong. There is a need for security, right? You need to feel that I'm safe, that I'm not threatened. There is a need for significance. That's why when you feel belittled, it hurts. Why? Because you want your life to amount to something. You want a sense of a worth and a significance in life. There's also a need for competence. We're wired to accomplish things, and we need to, to accomplish our responsibilities in a way that we feel like we're capable and adequate. So competence. And then the last two are biggies. Love. Who here needs some love? Plenty of it, right? Love and what? Acceptance. Acceptance is know that you're welcome, that you're valued for who you are. Would you agree with me? Those are important. They're the need in every human heart. And as I go around the world teaching this message, I found it doesn't really matter what culture we're in, although there's differences in language and, and the setting. These are the needs of the human heart because all of us are living very far from Eden. In Eden, before the fall, there was fulfillment and dominion. Outside of Eden, whether it's Minnesota or Tennessee or anywhere else, there's going to be disappointments. So I'm asking you to diagnose your disappointments. And I'd like to propose to you that whatever our life controlling problem might be is primarily a symptom, not the root problem. So let's look at the context of these disappointments in the next slide. We're going to see that as we've had the opportunity to counsel people over these decades since 1970, it's become very obvious that to the extent you have not had these ultimate needs met through relationships, you're probably going to recognize some things on the slide here. See if you agree. As I show this information to people, so often it resonates, saying, yeah, that's, that's true. And the more rejection has occurred in our life, whether it was from your father or your mother, or through other important relationships, whether that was subtle or whether it was really obvious, whether it was limited or just pervasive growing up, to the extent that you've had rejection, to that extent it's going to be likely these are going to be some of the emotional problems that you face. Now, one of the neat things about teaching is you get to use one of these things, you know, these laser pointers. Here we go. So, feelings of worthlessness, uh, wishing he had not been born, and sometimes I've heard people say that I was told by my parents, we wish you hadn't been born, so that really stings. Uh, feelings of inferiority. I felt sorry for the fellow who went to the psychiatrist and said, my problem is I really had these chronic feelings of inferiority. The psychiatry did his case and said, I have news for you. You don't just have feelings of inferiority, you really are inferior. It really made things worse. But maybe that's how you feel, inferiority feelings. Inability to express feelings. In some families, you're not permitted to express how you feel, so it it's, uh, has to be stuffed inside. Depression. 
not even knowing how you feel because it's been stuffed down for so long. Subjectivity, looking at life through your, your emotions. What else? Uh, introspection. Like one lady came for counseling saying, I have a case of ingrown eyeballs. I'm always looking inside and don't like what I see. And sometimes it causes perfectionism where we think, I've not been treated as a significant, uh, secure person, but I'm going to prove them wrong by trying my best to be a perfect person. If I can only achieve that standard, then I'll be okay. So that's one of the scenarios that sometimes plays out, perfectionism. Or the opposite is, I've tried that, it doesn't work, I'm just not even going to try to achieve. So little self-discipline might be there. Or irresponsibility, worries, doubts, and fears, self-condemnation, self-hatred, guilt, are you all cheered up? <clears throat> well, it's not a cheerful thought, but it's a realistic insight. Would you agree? I think for most people, you see those symptoms and you recognize, you know, a lot of that is true in my case. My point is not to emphasize it, but to clarify that these are symptoms of the disappointments of life that are very understandable. And the more severe rejection you've experienced, the more likely these kind of issues are going to show up. Now, a psychologist can point out these things, but a psychologist doesn't have the spiritual New Covenant ministry resources to do anything about it. But we're going to see that God has the potential to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are captive, and make this transform. Okay? Let's go to the next slide. Now, this diagram is one of a series of diagrams from my mentor, his name is Charles Solomon. And Charles had a lot of baggage growing up in terms of his own emotional problems and came to Christ at age 18. Then he uh, surrendered to the Lord the best he knew how at age 27. But he continued to have a lot of these things we just looked at in terms of inferiority and depression and mental and emotional conflicts. And it wasn't until he was about 35 years of age that God opened his eyes to what we're talking about this morning, about his union with Christ and his new identity. And when that went from head to heart, God healed him of this chronic mental and emotional condition. And it was so dramatic that he left his career in the field of aircraft engineering to help people experience Christ-centered counseling. You might say that in the field of aircraft engineering, it was about helping planes fly, but in terms of Christian counseling, he's been helping Christians live a higher Christian life. You know? Isaiah says we should... Wait upon the Lord and, and mount up with wings like eagles, right? Have a higher life. To run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. So he developed some diagrams because engineers like to think in terms of diagrams and processes. And this is simply a tool that you might like to learn more about. It. Uh, it's in this little track called the Wheel and Line Track, and they're here on the table if you like a copy. And let me just uh, walk you through some of the things that many around the world have found useful as a way of explaining. Uh, Christian counseling. You see these three aspects of how God made us? He made you with that physical dimension, the psychological dimension, and the spiritual dimension. So through the body, you relate to your environment. To the soul, you relate to others. And to the spirit, you relate to God. And the spirit includes things like intuition. You know, part of you is asking ultimate questions, right? Is there life after death? What is the meaning of life? How did I get here? You know, those are ultimate spiritual questions. Conscience, you have an inner witness, don't you, of what's right and wrong. And then communion is that need for a personal relationship with our Creator. So those are your spiritual faculties. And here in your soul, you've got mind, 
They've got will and emotions. See if you're paying attention. What are the three faculties in your soul? Mind, will, and emotions, okay? So some counseling focuses on changing your mind. Some counseling focuses on changing how you behave, your will. Some healing damage emotions. All that's valid. But we believe that what's even more important in terms of New Covenant Recovery Ministry is what's in the center. You see that question mark? The question mark represents your quest for fulfillment through achievement and relationships, and whether that's working for you or not working for you. Let's go to the next slide. When we receive God's redemption, like we were talking about, there's a miracle that takes place in the core of who you are. And the Bible describes that as a spiritual rebirth. Remember the religious leader that came to Jesus, Nicodemus? He says, we know, Jesus, that you must be sent from God because no one could do these miracles unless God was with him. And Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, you must be born, born again. You need to be spiritually born again. So it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And so he describes the famous verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So when you, you do receive Christ as your Redeemer, then you receive what we call salvation, deliverance from condemnation, deliverance from hell. Assurance is having the confidence that if you receive Christ, God is not going to kick you out of his family. Security, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then acceptance. A minute ago we talked about the symptoms of rejection. Remember that list? It was pretty painful to look at, wasn't it? Well, I have good news for you this morning. That is, the one who knows you best loves you most. And when you receive Jesus, God welcomes you. And Ephesians 1.6 says that we are accepted in the Beloved. We're accepted in the Beloved. So, whatever disappointments you've experienced, friends, God wants to compensate you for that disappointment by the fulfillment that Jesus gives in our life. Remember the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman? She goes out there midday, you know, with her pitcher to get some water. And she starts drawing water, and Jesus says, you know, you give me a drink, and she, they get this conversation, and Jesus says, would you like living water? What do you mean living water? Well, the water that you get from this well, you're going to thirst again, but the water that I give people, the water of salvation is going to become a spring of water, living water in you, springing up into eternal life. And she receives Christ and experiences that spiritual living water. The story about Jesus feeding the 5,000, his teaching was so profound as he healed the brokenhearted and set a liberty to captives that people would say, listening to him for days, and, and they would go without food. And he, he actually fed over 5,000 miraculously. But then he clarified that it wasn't about filling their stomachs, it was about filling their hearts that really counted. And he said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes on me will never thirst. Can I ask you this morning, are you hungry for love? Are you thirsty for acceptance? Are you hungry for significance? Are you thirsty for worth? Jesus wants to be your source of life. Amen? He wants to be your source of fulfillment because he's come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So here we're talking about the spiritual aspects of life and, and God has designed your spirit to be the governing aspect of your life. See, many people have their 
their physical needs governing their life, and they find out that living as an animal is uh, a very destructive way to live. Most people are living out of their own independent will, and, and living as a fallen person doesn't work too well either. God wants us to be spiritually piloted, because that was his original design. He wants your spirit to govern your soul, and then your body to be your servant, not your boss. Does that make sense? That's God's design. Let's go to the next slide. Take a closer look at this with me, friends, because the typical problem that most of us have is identified by the S in the center, and that represents self. By self, we mean our tendency to live independently of God, even as a Christian. Can you say the word self? Self. self. And by self, we mean what the Bible calls the flesh, or our, our residual independence, where we think, okay, God, you saved me by grace, but now I'm going to try my best on my own. And just help me once in a while when I really get stuck. Well, self doesn't work too well. Let me explain that a bit more. Remember we talked about rejection? When you think about your life growing up, whether you think about before you were age five, or during your elementary school years, or your high school years, or beyond, when you've had those episodes of, let's say it might have been verbal abuse, or physical abuse, or sexual abuse, whether it was abandonment or betrayal, those painful situations do cause emotional damage. And very often it includes things like inferiority, where we don't feel like we've been validated and valued as a person. There may be insecurity, because if there's been abuse and, and trauma, then we haven't been protected the way we should have. So insecurity stays with us. And then inadequacy, where if we've never been given that pat on the back and and validated and appreciated for what we've done, we feel like maybe we could never measure up. And so uh, there could be inadequacy. And then we often look for love in the wrong places and try to cope in destructive ways. And so there's guilt for doing things outside of God's design, outside of his boundaries. And that can be real guilt for real sin, or it can be even imaginary guilt where we've got this guilt complex even after we've been forgiven. And then there's the possibility of worries and doubts and fears. And those are typical primary psychological symptoms. And if I were to take a survey in the room this morning, I wonder how many of you would check off one or more of those things. Well, if we're outside of Eden and we're disappointed, it's likely that some of those things are going to be there. But cheer up, it gets worse. <clears throat> and that is that along come the problems of life. Is there anything stressful about living in Minnesota? A bit of stress like traffic and economic problems, health problems, relationship conflict. Winter, yeah. So you got stress, and when the problems of life come, they, they intensify the baggage that we carry from the past. So whatever these primary psychological conflicts are, they become intensified by the stresses and problems of life. And when problems come, whether they be financial problems or family conflicts or others, then self doesn't handle those conflicts very well. So it causes frustration. Did anybody here say frustration? Frustration. We don't like frustration very well. And how do we handle that frustration? Usually we handle it one of two ways. Either we blow up or we clam up. Okay? We blow up when we're frustrated and hostile and then it just we let somebody have it verbally, you know, and we, we feel better, but they feel worse, right? So we might blow up, we might express our anger, but often we internalize it because we don't want to rock the boat, we don't want to 
cause ruckus, so we stop that frustration, and guess what happens? It causes a secondary mental problem where our mind is kind of looking for a way out, right? We think, can I daydream? Maybe that'll feel better, or, or maybe the mind is kind of has racing thoughts that they must find a way out. And so I think we can have sometimes a psychotic break from reality. So many times people tell me they have these, these mental and mental conflicts, and, and sometimes medication can slow that down a little bit, but if it's caused by soul conflicts, it doesn't really give a lasting solution. So we may have uh, these kind of mental conflicts, but also frustration and hostility internalized cause secondary emotional problems like depression and anxiety. And I don't think I need to tell you this morning that depression and anxiety are chronic problems across our land around our world. Why? Because self was never designed to live independently of God, even as a Christian. We need to know Christ as our Savior and our Lord and our life. Now, to explain this a little bit more, I mentioned, cheer up, it gets worse. Well, the longer we hold on to these kind of internal conflicts, and as long as self tries to cope in our own strength, living out of our, our natural identity, even trying to do a good program like this one, if self is really our source of living, then it's going to eventually cause some stress-related health problems. And the next slide talks about that. Now, when you look at these health problems, I'm not saying that they're all caused by internal stress, but the doctors that I've talked to, the medical professional, professionals, can see that, yes, many times, these kind of problems are caused or made worse by stress. See if you identify with some of these. Things like tension headache. I mean, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? That if you're really stressed out mentally, that you may get a headache. Or if someone is really uptight, that sometimes it causes stomach trouble. And other problems, like even things like, uh, you know, racing heart. I remember visiting someone who was really stressed out and his heartbeat went out of rhythm. And he had to go to the hospital for three days for them to medicate and get his heart back in rhythm. So there's a mysterious soul-body connection. Does that make sense? So just as stress can cause health problems, if there were a way for God to bring soul rest, then you could expect stress-related health problems to improve. And we see that as well. I remember a fellow who was very desperate. He um, was a Christian, but had not been living this victorious life. And he had a, a blowout with his wife and, and was violent toward her and was arrested for domestic violence. She took their five-year-old son, moved across the state of Tennessee, and he tried to call her and reason with her to try to get her to drop the charges, and she wouldn't hear of it. And he got more and more upset, more and more frustrated, and uh, paid a lot of money to the lawyers to try to stay out of jail. And then finally he got his gun. I was thinking about ending it all. But before he took his own life, he started to dial some numbers to look for a Christian counseling. And he ended up calling Great Fellowship Counseling Center, where I work. And he came in, I remember hearing his story, and walking you through these very diagrams we're looking at this morning. After a couple of weeks, he realized that his problem was not his wife. It wasn't that the, the lawyers weren't doing a good enough job. Eventually, he came to recognize that his problem was himself. Friends, when you go to the doctor, the most important initial step is to have an accurate diagnosis. Do you agree? And so when he realized that the problem was himself, then we can move forward and say, well, God has a solution to the self-life problems. And so he recognized what the problem was. And then he repented of mistreating his wife, 
he came to a place of giving up his rights to stay out of jail, giving up his rights to his wife, giving up his rights to erase the consequences of what he did. And as he let go of control, God started to change his own heart. And in a few minutes I'm going to show you another diagram that talks about our union with Christ. And when he saw that message and believed it, he started to find rest in his soul. Now you women have what we call women's intuitions. And when he had a spiritual breakthrough, when he eventually called his wife again, she said to him, what has happened to you? She realized he wasn't agitated, he wasn't controlling. What has happened to you? He talked about his spiritual discovery in counseling. A week later, she came to our counseling center. She met with my associate, Dr. Solomon, and she came to soul rest. Eventually, they were reconciled. I remember a few months later, seeing a car pull up in the driveway of our counseling center, and they walked hand in hand to our front door. And we talked for a few minutes and said, we just want to give thanks to God for what he's done in our lives, how he's restored our marriage. And we just want to say, if there's anything we can do to help others who are struggling, we just want to be a source of encouragement. Amen? Let's give God a hand for that one. He is still in the business of healing the broken heart and setting at liberty those who are captive. Let's go on to the next slide because there is a solution, and we'll call that solution the Christ-centered life. And this talks about knowing Christ not only as Savior, but relinquishing control to Him as Lord, and claiming our union with Him as life. Remember, He gave His life to us, that He might live His life through us. Now, this person has not only been born again, because it's possible to be spiritually saved, but solely miserable at the same time. Right? The last diagram showed that. But this person has realized the need for what we call total commitment. And he or she has discovered what it means to be identified with Christ. In the video we just saw, remember how the person was taken out of Adam's line and grafted into Christ's line? And so when we're united with Christ, then it gives us a new identity and a new source of power. And if we come to believe this and rest in Him, look at the changes that can take place. And we see this sometimes as a crisis, Sometimes it's a more gradual process. But as David says, the Lord restores my soul. And so instead of a mind that's going and going and going, can't turn off, God wants to give us serenity. Instead of turmoil and insecurity, He wants to give us His peace. Instead of a sense of failure and weakness, He wants to give us His strength. Instead of that feeling of inadequacy, He wants to give us His resources. Instead of depression, He wants us to give us his joy. How many are in favor of that change? He has come to give us life more abundantly. But there are a couple of conditions, friends. Just as there is a condition for redemption, we need to repent and receive them, there are conditions for this Christ-centered life. Now, in Matthew chapter 11, we have a wonderful description of what God wants to do. I think it's the next slide. And you've probably come across this verse if you've read the New Testament. Uh, could you read it with me? Jesus declared, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let that soak in. Isn't that wonderful? You ever feel heavy laden, tired out, stressed out? Jesus says, Come unto me. Not just come into a program, not just come to a belief system. Come to me as a living, resurrected Savior who lives in you, if you're saved. 
And what does he say? I will give you rest. If you back up to the previous slide, can we do that? Notice that this is a two-stage invitation. When you receive Christ as Redeemer, you get spiritual rest. But then he says, take my yoke. And what this diagram represents surrender and trust in our union with Christ. When you identify with Christ by faith, then you will find rest for your soul. And this yoke is easy because it's a grace perspective. Remember the new identity, the new principle, the new resource? And this, this yoke is easy, this burden is light because Christ himself wants to be your life source. Isn't that awesome? It's life more abundantly. And this is what his plan is for us. And what shows up? The fruit of the Spirit as we let him live his life through us. So let's go forward and take a closer look at what's involved here. I'd like to ask you this question. If you were to be asked, what is eternal life? What comes to your mind? I think for most people it's okay if you die and go to heaven, then that's eternal life. And that's, that's one aspect of eternal life, but I want to expand your understanding of that. This diagram, I, re- I warned you that my friend Carl Solomon who wrote these diagrams was an engineer, so here's another diagram, okay? But they're useful as a, as a teaching tool. So this line represents God's life which has no beginning. That's kind of hard to grasp, isn't it? No beginning and no ending. Well, that's what the Bible says about God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal, the only one who is. So eternal life is actually God's life. And when you take a closer look at the New Testament, remember when Jesus talks about himself as the life, he says, I am the resurrection and the, the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the life. He is God's life revealed in, in human flesh. So eternal life is God's life without beginning and without ending. Now, the next slide talks about the wonderful plan of redemption that we talked about in chapel. And that is that this represents Christ. And John 1 says that, verse, first verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 is, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the virgin birth of Christ, the sinless life, and we beheld His glory. So this represents Jesus leaving heaven's glory as the eternal Son of God and clothing Himself with human nature and stepping into temporal human existence so He could be the perfect example and be qualified to be our Redeemer. So this is the plan of redemption. Jesus becomes man. He lives a sinless life, and he dies on the cross. And why did he die on the cross? To be our substitute, right? Remember when he read for that scroll in the book of Isaiah? Chapter 53 puts it this way, predicting what Christ would do. It says about the cross, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, but the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. That's what it's about, right? The cross. We said before, God's justice and his love intersecting at Calvary. So this is the wonderful good news that we can be reconciled to God by the death of Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel. But the next slide talks about this deeper work of the cross and how we need to grasp this with a little bit more clarity. Uh, here, this... Uh, this diagonal line represents life in Adam. So at the beginning up here, that's how God created our human ancestry. And you and I show up in Adam's lineage, okay? So that represents your natural life, okay? Use your imagination, okay? But that represents your life. Now let me ask you this. Where 
that you get your human, your human life from? You got your human life from mom and dad, right? Where did they get their human life? From their parents. So if you logically think back, all of us were back in Adam and Eve's gene pool at the Garden of Eden. That's kind of an awesome concept, isn't it? But all of us were in Adam and Eve's gene pool at the beginning of human history. And God said to Adam, Adam, if you break this covenant, you will die spiritually that very day. And that's what happened. Adam broke the covenant, the spirit became separated from God, and there was condemnation. And now we are born into a world that is wracked with war and disease and death and turmoil. Amen? Read the news every day you see the heartache all around us. But when you were born, you were born with some birth defects. You were born with a body that starts aging and it's, and it's frail and so forth, a mortal body. You're born with a spirit that's separated from God. And you're born with the baggage of Adam's condemnation. Thanks a lot, Adam. Now, that's not a good scenario, right? So no wonder we need a Savior. So we show up in this lineage, and the Bible says we're on the broad road that leads to destruction, and many, most people are going that way. But again, aren't you glad that God loves us, as we saw in the Father's love letter? And God demonstrated his own love towards you and me, and that while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. So on the next slide, we describe what it means for us to be in Christ. And there's a couple of steps to this slide. When you receive Christ as Savior, next point, God takes you out of Adam, next point, and he grafts you in to Adam's line. See, the Bible says repeatedly that when you're in Christ, you are taken out of Adam, you're put into this new lifeline. You're no longer in Adam. Now you're in Christ. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a, a new creation. And we'll unpack that a bit more. But also the Bible says, a couple more points here, that when you're identified with Christ, you're identified with his death, you're identified with his burial, you're identified even with his resurrection. And one more click, the Bible says we're seated with him in heavenly places. Now, this is so awesome, I just need to read it right out of the Bible for you. And if you look at the book of Romans, chapter 5, you see some bad news, and then we're going to see some good news. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as the one man sin entered the world, and who is that one man? Adam, right? The uh, death spread to the whole human family, death spread to all men, because all sin, that's past tense, all the sin in Adam is our representative. And then as you go down, it says in verse 14, death reigned like an evil king from Adam to Moses even over those who didn't break the law like Adam did. But it says Adam was the type of him for what's to come. The deep theology, man, thank you with me. But Adam, in some way, foreshadowed Jesus Christ. How was that? Adam was the head of the natural human family. Jesus comes, the Bible calls him actually the last Adam. So we get the connection. Jesus, the last Adam, comes as our hero to fix what Adam ruined, to redeem what Adam lost, and he passes the test. He dies for us and rises again. So when you receive Christ, now you become part of his redeemed family. So let's take a closer look at this. When you receive Christ, God takes you out of Adam and he puts you into Christ. Now if this hand represents God's life, and this hand represents your spirit that's brought from God, 
Remember the illustration from before about the black love they were cut off from God? When you receive Christ, God's eternal life joins with your human spirit and you become the new creation. See, your human life began when the seed of your father and the egg of your mother joined in, in your conception. God says when you're born again, your spirit and God's spirit join and you become a new creation spiritually when you receive Christ. Isn't that awesome? You become a new person. You don't just get something you didn't have, like forgiveness. You become someone you weren't before at the core of who you are. I know this is pretty profound. But just we're going over it in terms of what the Bible teaches in Romans. Now in chapter 6 of Romans, if you're still in the neighborhood, Romans chapter 6, verse 3, says, Don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? So if I could use my pointer here, when you are plunged into Christ's life, you are also connected with his death. What that means is, who you were in Adam got put off, and you're no longer that person any longer. Let's look at verse 6. Romans 6, verse 6. Knowing this, it's a fact. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ. I'll read that again. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ. So God says he wants you to know this. Who you were in Adam got canceled at Calvary. Now who are you spiritually? You're this made alive son or daughter of God, if you're a believer. And that means, the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have what? Passed away. What has passed away? You were condemned, now you are declared righteous. You were on the broad road of least destruction, now you're on the way to life. You were spiritual, you were separated from God, now you're united with God's Spirit. Amen? All these are things that have changed. All things have become new. What else has become new? You have a new identity. You're not identified by what other people say about you. You're not identified by your social class, your ethnic group. You're not identified by your emotions or your life experience. If you're a true believer, you're identified by your spiritual birth. And God says that's a royal birth. A royal birth. The Bible says we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And God says you need to see yourself the way God sees you. And that is if you're a new creation. So now that you're in Christ, the old you was crucified with him and buried. One of my favorite authors is a fellow named Oswald Chambers. And Oswald Chambers says every Christian needs to have a white funeral for himself. A funeral for yourself? Well, a funeral, what that means is you, when you go to a funeral, you come to terms with the death of someone. And Mr. Chambers is saying, we need to have a funeral for who we used to be. We need to come to terms and say goodbye to that old identity. Goodbye to that old destiny. Goodbye to that old value system. Are you with me? And we need to say hello to our, our new identity that's raised with Christ and ascended with Him. So as you look at this diagram with me, you see that when you're in Christ, you not only get a new future, but you also get a new past. How many of us could use a new past? Okay? Yes, we still have the memories. Yes, we still have those life experiences. But since God identifies you by your spirit, and you didn't get your new spirit from Adam, did you? You got it from God's eternal lifeline. That means the core of who you are has a new lineage that goes back to the cross where the old you was crucified, a tomb where the old you was buried, 
You were raised with Christ, sharing His power, and seated with Christ, sharing His victory. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. This is true of you, but we need to unwrap this gift and live like it and believe it. Now, the first command of the book of Romans is chapter 6, verse 10, where it says, in Romans chapter 6, verse 10, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon yourself to be identified with Christ. Now, in East Tennessee, we have some, some language issues, okay? Someone might say, I reckon if someone would be a nice day today, right? And they mean, reckon means I think it might happen. But this word is an accounting term. Those of you who like numbers are going to like this word. It means count it to be true because it is true. Put your name in the blank and reckon it, count it to be true because it really is true. Have that funeral and have that birthday party that you are in your creation. Now, if you have your New Testament with you, let me point you to a couple more verses and then we'll, we'll start to wrap this up and show you the implications. Ephesians chapter 2. This is pretty amazing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Ephesians 2, 4 says... God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then the ages to come, he might show the exceeding greatness, the kindness for us in Christ Jesus. Friends, spiritually and positionally, because Christ was raised and you're one with him, you were raised. And so you share his spiritual power. And because he's seated in the heavenly places, you share his authority over Satan, over this world system, and over those old patterns that want to hold us back. Friends, that's something to shout about. That is good news. But we have to take it to be true. And I'm not that birthday gift. It's really vital. This meaning of Christ is mentioned in John 14, verse 20. I know I'm giving you a lot of verses, but John 14, 20 says this. Jesus described the spiritual union. And that day you'll know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Once again, he's saying, in that day when the Holy Spirit comes, when you are in Christ, you will know that I am in the Father, God's Father, you as a believer are in me, Jesus says, and I am in you through the Holy Spirit. Now, one of our co-workers Design this object lesson. I know in the back there it's hard to see, but this big envelope says Father God. Okay? So Jesus is saying, in that day you will know that I am in the Father. So I'm going to go into this envelope, and I'm going to pick up an envelope inside it. That envelope says Jesus. Jesus says, I am in the Father. But he also says, you are in me. So I go into this envelope. Okay? You are in Christ if you're a believer. So I also believe that that's you. You are in Christ. But then he says also that I am in you. So I'll open this envelope. There's the Holy Spirit, okay? You are in Christ. Christ is in the Father. And that's the spiritual union that you and I need to live out of. Now what's so amazing about this, friends, is that the Christian life is not primarily an imitation. It's a participation. It's not primarily an imitation. Is participation. Once again, nothing is going to come into your life today, but it's going to first be filtered through the loving, providential care of God. And then when it passes through God, 
it reaches Jesus Christ. Okay? When it passes through Jesus Christ, then it reaches you as a believer. But when it reaches you, it doesn't reach you by yourself. It reaches you with the Holy Spirit in you. Amen? Give the Lord a hand. Hallelujah. The next slide talks a bit more about this paradigm shift. Now we have this critter in Tennessee. I don't know whether it's in Minnesota. But what animal do you see there? Okay, looking looking that way is the rabbit. Okay, that's the mouth of the rabbit. Those are the ears of the rabbit. Looking that way, that's the duck, right? The bill of the duck and so forth. So that way is the duck, that way is the rabbit, okay? Sometimes we counsel people that have been theologians and pastors and missionaries, and all they see is the rabbit, they don't see the duck, okay? All they see is that Christ died for them, they don't see that they died with Christ. We need a paradigm shift, amen? We need to realize that we're in Him, He's in us, like the envelope described, that's a different perspective. Imagine someone gives you a, uh, gives you a painting, and it's a beautiful sunset, and you say that, I hear that the artist painted this off the coast of California. And you have that in your living room for 20 years. And then someone visits you, who is the artist who painted that painting? You say, wow, I get to meet the artist. And he comes in and he describes you know, what it's like in his art career. He says, I remember when I painted that you know, off the coast of Virginia. You think, Virginia? I mean, that wasn't in California? No, I painted that off the coast of, you know, on the coast of Virginia. That means it's not a sunset, it's a what? It's a sunrise. Same picture, different perspective, right? The cross is not only where Christ died for you, but the old you died with him. That's a different perspective. That's why Ephesians 1, Paul prays that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we would catch this new perspective of the gospel. Well, enough for our zoo uh, analogy there. Let's go to the next one. So we're back to this message about the Christ-centered life. This person has had that paradigm shift. I am in Christ, he's in me. Now, what are the two steps for this to be experiential? Well, there's two fundamental ones. I know that we're kind of compressing this a lot this morning. Let's go to the next slide. And the first of these two is to give God control. And if you're jotting some notes down this morning, I want you to remember Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Could you read it with me? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable perfect will of God. A couple things I'd like to draw you to your attention. One, this is written to Christians. This is written to people who receive Christ as their Redeemer, so they confess that He is the Lord, but you see what it's asking us to do. It's saying give God control. You've confessed Him as Lord, now yield fully, wholeheartedly to His Lordship. You've found Him King, now live under the full realization of His kingship. Notice that this is a, a living sacrifice. Not that you're passive, not that it's a one-time thing, but it's a wholehearted decision. It's called our reasonable service because if Jesus would be the Son of God who left of His glory to be nailed to the cross as a voluntary substitutionary sacrifice for you and me. He did that for you and me. Isn't it reasonable 
you and I, would, as an expression of gratitude, give God control of our life. Especially when he sweetens the deal by the last phrase. God's will for your life is three things. It's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. So I ask you this morning, if God's will for your life is good, if it's acceptable, if you would agree with it, if you knew everything from God's perspective, if it's perfect, wouldn't you agree with me this morning that it's a good deal for you to say yes to God, to give you control? Especially when you remember the Father's well-blooded material, right? That He really is for you, not against you. So we need to give Him control. And so I ask you to really deal with that this morning if God calls you to that deeper level of commitment. And then the next slide, we need to count on our identification. Remember what we said about reckoning? Count it to be true personally. So that's what this verse says. Did you read it with me? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in this body, I live by dependence upon the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul, the apostle, wrote this, and he's not just talking about some general concept. He said, I have been. I have been. The old Saul who stood by when Stephen was martyred, the old Saul who was such a uh, persecutor of the church, that guy was crucified with Christ. Christ lives in not just believers, but in me personally. The life which I, Paul, live in this mortal body, I live by dependence, by faith on the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So friends, we're talking about a coin with two sides on it, okay? Side one is relinquished control. Side two is claimed by faith or identification with Christ. And as you do that, the Bible says you have that paradigm shift of realizing that this is a grace life. That it's not primarily imitation, but it's participation. You discover that Christ gave his life for you, that he might give his life to you, that he might give his life Amen? Is this relevant? Okay, next slide. Many of us need object lessons, and I've tried to give you some this morning. Here's another one. For those of you who are familiar with the history of the Old Testament, do you remember that when the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, was, they were in Egypt, they cried out because of the oppression and the bondage. God sent Moses, God sent deliverance, and through the blood of the Passover lamb, they were redeemed. They were delivered. Then they got to the edge of the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh thinks, why did I let the children of Israel go? They're my servants. They're building our, you know, our monuments here in Egypt. And they chase them. And so here the children of Israel are freaking out. Now, oh, you know, the Egyptian army is chasing us. And God says to Moses, lift up your staff. And God parts the Red Sea. The nation of Israel crosses the Red Sea. And then the Egyptian army chased them. God says, Moses, uh, take the staff down and, and God brings the waters to the Red Sea to destroy the Egyptian army. So God redeems the children of Israel. And that's a picture, friends, of our salvation. God has redeemed you from your Egypt by the Passover lamb of Jesus, who John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This isn't just imposing this idea on Scripture. It's very clearly described. First Corinthians 5, 9, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Jesus actually was crucified on the Feast of Passover to make sure we got that parallel. But you see, God designed that they would be redeemed so that they would recognize His sovereignty on Mount Sinai when they got the covenant, and then they were to enter the Promised Land and be a, a witness 
and an example to the rest of the world of his great salvation. But when they got to the border of the promised land, they, ten of the twelve spies that checked out the land, they checked it out for 40 days, they came back and said, this is a great land, but you know, we don't think we can, we can be victorious. And uh, Joshua Caleb said, if God brought us out of Egypt, he can bring us into the land. But the nation said, no, we're not, we're not going to obey God, even though he tells us to go in. We don't believe he can deliver us. And so how tragic that for 40 years, one day checking out the land, one year wandering in the wilderness. For 40 years, the middle part of this diagram, they were wandering in the wilderness. And devotional writers over the years have said, you know, it wasn't just the children of Israel that got sidetracked for 40 years. The average Christian gets sidetracked because we get saved by grace through faith, but then we think, okay, God, I'm going to live the Christian life the best I can in my own strength, out of my old identity. It's like, we're just wandering, sidetracked, and bogged down. We're not saying that God isn't faithful in those years. He is. He's got something better for us. And when the book of Joshua begins, I encourage you to read the book of Joshua again, we see that God tells Joshua, now I'm going to bring my people into the promised land. And they carry the Ark of the Covenant. That's the symbol of God's presence. And as they walk into the Jordan River, God stops the River Jordan upstream. Kind of reminds you of the Red Sea, doesn't it? And the people of Israel cross over, just like they did before. God says, take 12 stones from the Jordan Riverbed, and make a monument and remember this miracle. And so devotional writers who read Paul's letters, for example, say, you know, that really reminds me of Galatians 2.20. So crossing the Red Sea is Christ died for us. Crossing the Jordan River is realizing that I died with him. And surrendering and trusting him. And so we call this Jordan River a picture of our identification. And then the, the land of Canaan, the promised land, is not primarily heaven because there are walled cities to conquer and all kinds of warfare that still need to take place. But it's a picture of, of the not of Christ lifestyle. And so uh, there is still a need for freedom of Christ. There is a need for spiritual growth. But as you enter into the promised land, there's a new resource. The manna stops and they enter the promised land and they, they live on a new resource. They live with an awareness of what God has done. And then they realize the victory belonged to the Lord. And God did give them the victory. So friends, my question this morning is, where are you? Are you back in Egypt? You may have heard this morning about redemption, but if you haven't received Christ as Savior, the Bible says you're still in Egypt, so to speak. You might say, John, you know, it really kind of sounds like I'm in the wilderness. I look at that, that circle diagram about my soul, and I've got all that baggage, and I have all those conflicts. I've never really given God control. Well, God has good news for you. He says he wants you to give control to him. He wants to be your pilot. He wants to be your, your manager, your, your, your leader. So you give control to him. And then he says, claim by faith your co-death, your co-burial, your co-resurrecting, your co-ascension. By faith. And that's like crossing the Jordan River. So Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it what? More abundantly, which is a picture of ongoing advancement into Canaan. Friends, where are you? Are you in Canaan? Maybe you're in spiritual warfare. You've made Galatians 2.20 your testimony, but you're dealing with some freedom of Christ issues, or you're, you're getting more discipleship here. That's great. But know where you are. And God wants to lead you, lead you forward into his victory, one step at a time. One of my friends, his name is Mike Quarles, and Mike has a very unusual testimony. 
he uh, went to seminary, uh, became a pastor. But during his time as a pastor, he found that his emphasis, really looking back on it, was more trying to get people to behave by trying harder. And so he ended up leaving the pastorate, kind of discouraged and defeated. He became a stockbroker, went back to his old line of work, and, and he turned to alcohol as a means of coping. And the alcohol got so bad that he, he knew he was an alcoholic, but he couldn't shake that addiction. He tried 25 different types of therapy programs, and nothing set him free. This is especially embarrassing because he had all that theological education, and yet he still was stuck with the chains of alcoholism. And yet, I'm fascinated to hear that it was actually one of our former colleagues uh, teaching on the message that we just talked about this morning that radically changed Mike's life. And let me read to you from his testimony. He said, um, Someone had said that it is uh, when we have shot our last bullet and sent our last thought that God is able to work in our lives. There is no possibility of freedom, peace, victory, and joy without coming to the end of self. The way up in the Christian life is down. Revival is not the roof blowing off, but the floor heating in. Grace always flows downhill and meets us at our point of need, at our point of brokenness. Grace cannot be merited or manipulated. It is only available for those who have experienced total, absolute bankruptcy of their own self and failure of their own resources. Does God have an answer for addiction? Is there really any hope for the person who seems to be hopelessly enslaved? Is there such a thing as victorious Christian life? I live in constant defeat. My struggles seem to be more intense and my defeats seem more disastrous than most. But I really didn't know many of any Christians who seem to be free and living the victorious Christian life. No one had answered for me. Now I see that not only did I not know what the answer was, but I didn't have a clue as to what the problem was. Dr. Bill Gillum, in his book Lifetime Guarantee, says it this way. The problem is you don't know what your problem is. You think your problem is your main problem, but that's not the problem at all. The problem is you don't know what the problem is, and that's your main problem. <laughs> so, what's the problem? The problem is not the bad behavior, but the belief behind the behavior that causes us to act that way. Our behavior will always be consistent with our beliefs. What that means to the addict or anyone in bondage is that their behavior is not drinking alcohol or doing drugs or whatever, but it's the belief or misbelief of lies that causes us to act the way we do. He goes on to say, As far as I knew, I had tried everything there was to try. Everyone had given up on me. My pastor later told me, I didn't know anything else to tell you. Finally, a friend handed me some tapes and said, Here, listen to these. Maybe they'll help you. I listened to a couple of these tapes before and thought, oh, I don't want to listen to these. This, this theology doesn't agree with mine. See what I mean by stubbornly holding on to old beliefs? Then another thought came into my mind. I thought, I know now God was speaking to me. He said, your theology hasn't been doing you much good, has it? There was no denying that truth. So I made what I, uh, was one of the best decisions in my life that I would ever make. I would listen to those tapes with an open mind. However, I went out and got drunk again. The next morning, his wife, Julia, strongly suggested, kicking out, <clears throat> strongly suggested that I go visit some friends out of town and give her a break. I packed a few clothes and headed to Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. Now, as I was driving along listening to the third tape of this series by Dr. Bill Gillum, our co-workers with the Lord, I was listening to the tape, Code Crucifixion is Past Tense. Remember the line back again? Christ crucified. Co-crucifixion is past tense. 
Philip was saying on the tape, our death with Christ, in Romans 6 says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin, the body prone to sin, might be rendered inoperative, that we no longer need to be slaves to sin. What is this, I thought? I have died with Christ, I have been free from sin. That's what I need. But how do I make that true in my life? Then Jones was saying, it's not something you do, it's something that has been done. Our death with Christ is past tense. The old person we were was crucified, and anyone who has died is free from the authority of sin. Then he said, you died to sin. And then he says, I know you don't act, Bill said, I know you don't act dead to sin, you don't feel dead to sin, you don't even look dead to sin. You think it's just positional truth. But that's just the way God sees you. That's just what God says about you. Bill says, listen, if that's the way God sees you, that's the way it is. If that's what God says about you, that is the truth about you. See? That moment, so the light came on. In that moment, I knew the truth. I knew that I had died with Christ and the old sin-loving sinner had died and was no more. Oh, if I had believed the lie and acted like it for all these years. But that was not who I was. I now knew the truth that I was dead to sin, whether I acted like it, felt like it, looked like it, or anyone else believed it, because God said it, and I was. I knew the truth, and the truth set me free. So Mike went on to develop a counseling ministry based on New Covenant redemption, and for the last uh, 30 years, he's been applying the message of New Covenant recovery to the ministry of healing the broken hearts and setting a liberty of those who have it. Amen? So God did set him free, he equipped him for ministry, and he could say that based on the message we've been studying this morning, that we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. Romans chapter 8 gives us this verse. We are more than conquerors. Can you read that with me? We are more than conquerors to him who loved us. To him who loved us. What does that mean? You know, many of the time we just want to be a survivor, okay? But God says, I have something even more than being a survivor. I want you to be a conqueror. Christ living through you. And what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? More than a conqueror means someone who's not just a survivor, someone who has also received Christ's victory and now wants to let Christ live through him or her to help other people find freedom. Does that sound good, friends? Amen? For God to use your life to advance the ministry. And you Contrary, he says, ready? Christ gave his life for us, that he might give his life to us, that he might live his life through us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would show us this morning where we are. Lord, if there's someone here today who's still in Egypt, we pray that they would be convicted of the need for the Savior and give up on trying to rely on their own merits. And truly believe in their heart that Jesus is the Savior, that they would trust His finished work and they would call upon you to be saved. Lord, take them out of Egypt. Father, I pray for someone who's here today who is sidetracked in the wilderness. Lord, they, they've been redeemed, but in the meantime, it's just been a mean time. It's been a time of defeat and frustration and sorrow and heartache. Lord, I thank you that you want to lead us out of the wilderness into the promised land of victorious living. And so Lord, I just pray for each one who feels that they're in the wilderness, that today they would give up on trying to try harder, that they would give control over to you, 
and that they would believe the good news that they were crucified with Christ and buried with him, and they would have a white funeral for themselves, and that they would believe the good news that they were raised with Christ sharing his power and seated with Christ sharing his authority. And Lord Jesus, as we advance in Canaan, show us how to stand against the enemy, show us how to be more than a conqueror to spread the message of victory and healing to others through your amazing grace and truth. I pray your blessing, Lord, and your guidance and protection upon each each man and woman here in this chapel and this program this morning. Bless each one, bless each of the leaders, bless this organization here and around the world. And Lord, give us a hearts of joy, confidence, and peace as we celebrate New Covenant Recovery Ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you for being here. And we've got some few words to hear in the table if you want to see something. And welcome to this. Thank you.